Thank you, Patrick, Joanna, and Lucy, and Maggie. Uh, appreciate uh, them. Appreciate them gathering with us every week. It's not easy, but uh, we're really grateful for them and grateful for Patrick's ministry as an elder here. He's a new elder uh, here at Mercy House. So we're getting to the end of Ecclesiastes. Some of you may be happy about that. You're like, finally, we're, we're done with this thing. Um, and I think as, as you're reading through it, oftentimes this question comes to my mind is, what's the point? What is the point of what is being written in this, in this book? And is this just some nihilist trying to take us down to a paralyzing pit of despair? Or is there something more productive going on? And obviously, I think there's something very productive going on. This book is in the Bible, right? It's God's word, and it's been given to us uh, to build us up, you know, as disciples of Jesus. And so over and over, I think we've seen uh, the theme of um, being motivated or uh, pointed to living wisely, that uh, wisdom is good, and you should live wisely, and it's going to be beneficial to your life. But you should know there's glitches in the system and that there's limits to wisdom. Um, and so you see this over and, and over again. And, and you see this in the beginning of chapter 11. Um, it says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not, for, for you now know, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. So you see this like exhortation to be productive, like cast your, your bread on the waters, be generous, give a portion of what you're receiving from your work and your productivity, give a portion of that away even though you don't know what disaster might happen, right? Even though the clouds may be full of rain for you. Uh, e e even though there may be trees falling, then they will fall where they may. Uh, there's nothing you can do about it, right? So there's this sense of, 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 of going for it, uh, living your life productively and generously in spite of the fact that you know that there's uncertainty. There are glitches uh, in the system. And I think the writer knows that by showing you this, especially the glitches in the system part, that you're going to be tempted in a couple of ways. You're going to be tempted to embrace folly. That's one of the temptations. To say there's so many glitches in the system, I just for, forget it. I'm not going to try to live wisely. I'm just going to fully em embrace folly. And that was dealt with yeah, um, in last week's sermon, in Tommy's sermon, where he really explored uh, folly and fools, and we learned you know, we don't want to go that direction. But the other temptation is to despair and just do nothing, which is also folly, but it's a, dif it's a different kind of, of, of way of thinking about folly. Um, this is what he's getting at in verse 4. He, uh, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap that you become so fixated on the glitches, the clouds in the sky, I, I think it's going to rain. I'm not going to sow seed. Or, or, or you see the wind is blowing, bad weather, I'm just not going to go out and try to harvest. Um, that kind of negative forecasting. 
because of your experience of Hevel in this world will cause you to be paralyzed. You just won't sow, you won't reap, and then you won't have any crops. And that's foolish. <laughs> you won't have any food to eat. That's, that's folly. And he doesn't, he doesn't want you to go there. He, he doesn't want to, to push you into uh, those uh, temptations. Instead, he wants you to get up in the morning aware that you are in a world that, yes, there's Hevel, but it's also being superintended by a sovereign good God. That's what he's getting at in verse 5. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Right. So there's that God superintending everything. And then 6, so in the morning sow your seed. At evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. And so he's, he's, he's giving us this truth again about the sovereign good God. And in light of that, sow your seed, work hard, risk, seize the day. <laughs> and does it mean that every, you know, 100% of the time the seeds that you sow are going to produce a crop? No. But you're not going to get a crop if you don't sow seed. So do, it, do that in the morning, sow seed in the evening. And who knows, they might both come up. They might both produce a crop so we read that and that would be a great ending I think it'd be a great ending to the book it's a great summary honestly of the things that we've been learning from the book of Ecclesiastes but it's not the end it's not the end of the book um, I think in part because Solomon knows if if we just get a, a wisdom pep talk we still aren't motivated enough to actually execute wise living. If, if a wisdom pep talk was enough, then we wouldn't need Ecclesiastes. We got Proverbs. Proverbs is a great book of wisdom and wisdom pep talks. And so if that was enough, we wouldn't need it. We wouldn't need Ecclesiastes. But Solomon knows it's not enough. And case in point, our foolish lives. I mean, how many times have we done things that we knew were foolish, but we still did them? I mean, th th this, is, this is our predicament. That's what Tommy talked about last week. Folly's bound up in the heart. And so we, we need some, some greater motivations to step out of our folly and into wise living. And so the rest of this passage is really designed to motivate us to wise living. And the way he's going to motivate us is he's going to take us on a thorough reflection of dying and death. Aren't you glad you came this morning? I, get, give me an amen, Fabrique. Come on. Die and death. We're going, to have, we're going to have a thorough reflection on dying and death. Now, he's hinted at this before, that this is actually a helpful exercise. Back in, uh, we, I talked about this in chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. Remember, I, we, I talked some about this. Uh, it, it sounds so strange. It's the, the day of death is better than the day of birth. What are you talking about, Solomon? Well, what I said earlier was reflecting on the day of death. That's much wiser of an activity than reflecting on your day of birth. 
When you reflect on the day of death, things get real serious real fast. You sober up really fast about what is important in this life. And if you reflect on your day of death, you can reverse engineer your life based on that reflection. And when you reverse engineer your life in that way, you, it, it, you tend toward wise living. And so Solomon knows that. And so he, part of his big finish of Ecclesiastes is this thorough reflection on death and dying. Now, there's at least, at least four things, probably more, but at least four things, four lessons that he wants us to learn from this reflection. The first is that to remember that dying and death are inevitable. Dying and death are inevitable. Ecclesiastes 11.7, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Remember, remember that death and dying are inevitable. So Verse 7 and first part of 8, he's declaring it's good to be young, to, to be able to see the light of day. That's sweet. Enjoy your youthfulness. Enjoy that you can eat pizza at midnight and then go straight to bed and you will not have agonizing heartburn. Enjoy that, that you can sit at your desk all day with horrible posture and at the end of the day your back will not hurt. Enjoy the fact that you can jump off of stuff and land really hard on the ground and you don't break bones and you don't pull muscles. And rejoice and enjoy that you can see without needing glasses. You can see the light of day. In the ancient world, there were no glasses. So when you start to lose your eyesight in the ancient world, think about that. How many of us wear glasses? You start to lose your eyesight you're done. You, you can't see. There's no way to correct your eyesight. So don't hear him being a cynical old man. You're young now, but your life is going to turn into something horrible. That, that, that's not who he is. He's actually saying, you're young. Enjoy that. That's a gift. Steward that, right? But, and the, 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 you know, the second part of verse 8, remember the days of darkness will be many. D death and dying are inevitable. Don't forget this. Remember it. Right? It's interesting. He's saying remember, not like it's already happened. Obviously, if you're remembering something, you're not, you haven't died yet. He, he, he's saying, I want you to think forward, and you're, you're so certain that you're going to die. It's almost like a remembrance. It's going to happen. And so he's saying, remember, remember that you're going to die someday. And then, again, as if to, to keep you balanced, he goes right back to rejoicing in your youth, right? Ecclesiastes 11.9, the first part. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. So, so again, he, he, he's making sure those that are, that are young, he's, he's, rejoice in this, enjoy this. This is a gift given to you by God. 
uh, but he's a realist. And, and he, he wants younger people to, to think about and meditate on their day of death. Oftentimes it's said, youth is wasted on the young. Why did they say that? Youth, young people are like, oh, I don't know why they say that. But when you get older, you understand. Because you're like, wow, if I would have known then what I know now, and I could be 20 again, I would, I would live my life differently as a 20-year-old. I would use my youthfulness, I would steward it in a wiser way. And so the, here he is, he's, he's saying to the young, uh, don't waste this, don't waste this youthfulness. This is, this is a gift that you've been given. Because when you're young, you feel like you're going to be young forever. You're in your 20s, you're in your 30s, you're 32, you still think, I'm, I'm going to be young forever. You think you're immortal, but... What you are is what one writer said called amortal. You're just ignoring that you're mortal. And you feel like you're always going to have a, a back that is strong and eyes that can see and legs that can run. So don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. A lot of this is to the, the, to the young. A lot of you in this room are young. Don't waste your time. Don't lie around doing nothing. Don't, don't turn to folly. You're wasting your time. You're, you're young, and you have this youthfulness that you've been given to steward. And when you look back, you're going you're to wish, man, I wish I would have spent my time stewarding that in a wiser way. Then the second lesson, to remember that dying and death is judgment for sin over the entire human race. That dying and death is judgment for sin over the entire human race. So again, in verse 9, I read this earlier, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But, so you see that pattern again where he's like, But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. It's quite a juxtaposition there, right? It's like, rejoice in your youth, but God will bring you into judgment. Now, why would he use the word judgment? Well, he used the word judgment because death is judgment. Death is judgment for sin. Human beings were not created to die. Created, they were created in the Garden of Eden, eating from the tree of life. They, they, were, they were created to live, and they we're told not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if you did, you will die. Hebrew there literally means you will die, die. And so it's, 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 it's judgment, it's consequence for sin. It's judgment. And so if you've you know, read Genesis, you know by chapter 3, they've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they experience the consequences. They experience death. They've not only broken a rule, they've broken relationship with God, and God is the giver of life. And the absence of life is death. And so being separated from God who gives life, the result is death. It is judgment. Uh, the Apostle Paul sums it up well in the first part of Romans 6.23. He says, for the wages of sin is death. The consequences of sin is death. The judgment because of sin, is death. So, lessons so far. 
Death and dying are uh, inevitable. Death and dying are judgment for sin. That's some heavy stuff. That's some heavy stuff. Uh, and he seems to know that. He seems to know he, he, he is bringing down the hammer here, and, and so to speak. And, and then he wants you to know that you, to remember not to freak out when you're reflecting on your own death. <laughs> this is what he seems to be getting at in verse 10. Remove vexation from your heart. Isn't that interesting? All that heavy stuff where he comes down so hard and he says, oh, wait, 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 remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Now that's such a, such a, again, interesting, kind of curious way of phrasing things. Now, Healthline.com says that uh, the fear of death and dying is thanatophobia. Thanatophobia. Now, I don't think Solomon's trying to turn you into a thanatophobic. He's not trying to get you to start obsessing in a debilitating way about your death. And so if you're reflecting on death and dying, and it's causing you to be completely paralyzed, you know, uh, paralyzed, uh, you're doing it wrong. That's not what he wants. He's actually trying to get you moving. He's not trying to paralyze you. He's not trying to, to, to cause you to have debilitating depression. So know that that is not the, the, the goal. And that, in fact, you shouldn't be worrying about any, every little ache and pain thinking you have cancer and you're going to die tomorrow. I, th- I, think, I think that's what he means when, when he says, and put away pain from your body. He's like, look, as, as you're thinking on this, don't start thinking every little pain, oh, I, I, this is the end, you know, and obsessing. That's, that's not the purpose of this meditation. But the purpose of this meditation is to both exhort you to enjoy your youth, to steward your youth, but also keep it in its proper perspective. And, and this is where he says, because your youthfulness is hevel, it is this vanity, it's this vapor, is what the word literally means. And it, it's a great illustration of the hevel word, the, the vapor word, right? Because we're trying to grasp our youthfulness. I mean, we, we just can't help it. We're going to go to the gym, we're, we're going to take vitamins, we're, we're, we're going to do everything in our power to try to stay young. And there's nothing wrong with trying to stay healthy, but, but this is a fool's errand to try to stay young. It's coming. Dying and death are coming. And and so grasping at it as if it is something that is certain, that is vanity. That is meaningless. But it should be enjoyed. should be rejoiced in. should be stewarded. This is a really wise way of thinking about youthfulness. And you may say to yourself, I just don't think I can honestly look down into the abyss of dying and death and not become paralyzed in, in, in depression, which is why you need the fourth lesson, right? The fourth lesson is to remember that God, remember God and to do so as soon as possible. To remember God and do so as soon as possible. So this is in ver- uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. 
So here he's, he's showing you how he, he can look down into the abyss of dying and death and do so in a way that will not cause vexation in his heart. It's because he believes that everything is being superintended by the sovereign good God, even dying and death. And he's saying, because of this sovereign good God, you can enjoy the good things in this life, in this life and you can also entrust yourself to this God in the midst of the bad things, including dying and death. I was talking to uh, an alumni from our church uh, this week, and his name's Steve, Stephen Olo, and he was an undergrad here, a PhD candidate here, math professor now in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And uh, a few, few weeks ago, Steve lost his dad to cancer. And so he went back to Nairobi, uh, Kenya to go to the funeral. And so he and I, we talked about that, we, I prayed with him, and when we got, he did the funeral. Well, during the funeral, some people were, were COVID infected. They brought that to the funeral and they infected his mother. And in two weeks, his mother was dead. And so he buried two parents in two weeks. So I called him again. And what do you say, you know? Like, I didn't know what to say. I just knew I needed to call. I needed to just say, Steve, I'm here. I'm standing with you. I'm praying for you. I love you. I can't even imagine what you're going through. And in that call, he said, I know I can trust God in his providence, even if I don't understand it. And at that moment, Steve was preaching to me. He's saying, this one that he knows, this God that he knows, that he has known from his youth, is good enough for the darkest of days. And he can be trusted. He can be trusted. Even if you don't understand his providence, we can trust we are under the good rule of the sovereign good God. And so because of that, we can, we can look down in the seeming abyss of dying and death. And I, Interesting, again, enough, he's saying you should engage yourself with this remembrance of God when you're young. Do it as soon as possible to come under the good authority of God. I'm in my 30th year of ministry. All of it has been done, in, most, in the most part, with teens and 20s, young people. And it, it's been a a massive joy and privilege to be able to do that. In part because some of those young people are now starting to gray and they are still entrusting themselves to the sovereign good God who saved them back when they were in their teens and 20s. I mean, Lois is one of those, honestly. And when I see that, it is just so joy producing in me because I know the whole trajectory of their lives was massively changed because they came to know Christ when they were young. That, that it affected their, their, their choice of vocation. That it affects the way that they steward the money that they make from their vocation. 
that those that are married, it, it, it affected the, the people that they chose to marry and how they do their marriages. For those that have children, it's affecting the way that they raise their children to, to love Jesus. I know it's going to affect the way they use the, their, their retirement years and, and the, the way that they'll, they'll serve others in those years. And yes, it will affect the way that they bear up under dying and death. And I look at all that, I'm just, praise God that so many people I've seen come to faith early in life. And this is such an important part of our calling here at Mercy House. It's not the only thing we do, but it is a very important piece of the ministry here. To to have the privilege of introducing Jesus Christ to people who are in their 20s. And then see their whole lives, the trajectory of their whole lives change massively. There's so many amazing implications. Most churches do not have this opportunity. I mean, you can look at the demographics. Most churches are full of older people. They're full of gray heads. And they're they're scratching those gray heads and they're thinking, how do we get those 20-year-olds in the building? They have no clue. And for whatever reason, by God's grace, many a 20-year-old comes through these doors and hears the gospel. And I was talking to one this week who's just beginning the journey, reading the book of John, talking about the gospel, figuring it out, and I could just see it in his eyes. He's just coming to faith in Jesus. It's another one. (laughs) It's such a blessing. Such a blessing to see people get it when they're young. So if you're young and you're in this room and and you're, you're holding back on... Giving, going all in and faith in Christ. Don't do that. Go all in. Place your faith in Christ now. It's the most important way that you could steward your life as a young person is to trust in Christ, become his follower, and to let that set the entire trajectory of your life from this day forward. Wouldn't that be a great end to the sermon right there? Man, we're fired up. We got some lessons from death. We're, we're, we're ready to rock and roll. Nope, it's not the end. He's going to end this section on death with a poem about death. So let's do it. Verse 2. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. So he's beginning to, to share this poem. And the poem is about Aging. He describes aging as an ever-increasing darkness. Notice he says the sun goes out, the moon goes out, the stars go out. It's the very opposite of creation. Creation, you start with darkness, and you've got chaos, and then God says, let there be light, and then the darkness lights up, and the chaos becomes ordered. Well, death is the opposite of that. Death is decreation. You go from light to dark. Again, it's judgment. It's, it's a result of sin. And so this ever-increasing darkness is the wages of sin. For those who are in their latter years, a lot of what they're experiencing is sort of like clouds returning after the rain. That's, what he, that's the image he uses here in that verse. That is the opposite of the sun will come out tomorrow. When you're older, the sun doesn't come out tomorrow. You just, you go through one storm and another storm comes. You fall, you, you break something, you can't heal up. Then you're bedridden and it, it 
things don't, these physical things are not setbacks. They're devastating. And so this is what he's, he's describing. His next image is that of a dying house. Verse 3, In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed. Again, it's a poetic way to talk about the aging process in a human being, that these keepers of the house, or these hands that once could protect and produce, they're now trembling. These strong backs who could once lift and bend are now bent and hunched over. These grinders, as in your teeth, are few, and they're not all that good at grinding anymore. The windows, as in your eyes, are dim. Even sleep is affected by age. Verse 4, the doors on the street are shut, right? So he's describing this. It's nighttime, everybody's gone to bed. When the sound of the grinding is low, right? So nobody's working. And one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. He's describing a scenario where the older person is being awakened from their very fitful sleep by the slightest sound, and the sound is in the poem is a, a bird. Old people don't sleep well. There's a lot of reasons for that, but it's, it's a thing about aging. People that are aging are, are fearful. Verse 5, they're afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Older people, are, they're fearful. They're fearful of heights, partly because their, their, their balance is often affected. Um, they're fearful of being attacked because they're vulnerable. They're not strong enough to defend themselves anymore. It speaks of the almond tree uh, blossoming. Almond tree blossoms are white. So it's talking about the, the whiteness in the hair of the aged. They're not as spry anymore. They're like a, a wounded grasshopper that, that could once jump way beyond its height, but now is kind of dragging itself along through the grass. There's loss of sexual desire. Talks about this loss of, of desire. Literally, the Hebrew there is the caper berry, which was an ancient world aphrodisiac, sort of the Viagra of the ancient world. Who do you think's buying that Viagra? It's old people, okay? Because they're, they're, they're losing their sexual desire in aging. And they know they're going to be dead soon. Partly because all their friends and family are dying and they're having to attend funerals, right? The mourners go about in the streets. That, that's a funeral procession. This is one of the things that... that older people are doing a lot of they're going to funerals because their friends are dying their family is dying and, and as they do that every time they're in a funeral they're reminded I might be next and so it's a very vivid look at the experience of aging and, and then eventually death happens right verse 6 before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern 
and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. This is all imagery for death, a cord snapping. Like sometimes we'll say we're, we're hanging by a thread. Well, the thread's busted. It's broken. Uh, it, it talks of this, these different pitchers and bowls uh, shattering. Right? They, they once were able to hold something, and then they shatter. They're no longer able to hold whatever water or wine or whatever it was that was being held by it. Similarly, the, bo- the body dies, it shatters, and then the spirit, what it was holding, the body was holding the spirit. It, the spirit is returning to God. And so he, <laughs> he goes down that hole of dying and death, looks down into that abyss, and then he declares in verse 8, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And it's the, th- it's the thrice vanity, the thrice hevel, uh, which I, I don't think he's done that in, since the opening chapter of the book. So we know we're, we're, we're coming to the end there. And so he's looking at this dying and this death, and he, he's saying, look, look at that. Look, look at and, and, uh, the vanity of that, right? Look at how uh, fragile life is. Look, look at how trying to grasp life on this earth is absolutely futile. Because no matter how much money you have, not, no, no matter how much medical care you have, no, no matter how much time you spend in the gym, this is where you're headed. So, so don't grasp at this. doesn't mean don't enjoy it, don't, don't, don't receive good health and youthfulness as a gift, but don't grasp at it as if it is ultimate because it's not. And it should be obvious. <laughs> but we don't want to look into this reality. But I want to encourage you, and this text is encouraging you, don't look away. Don't look away. Linger for a moment here. View this, see this, maybe even smell it. I, it when, I, when I looked at this poem, it reminded me of when I was a child and my mother would, uh, would bring me along to nursing home visits. Visits to older family members who were dying. And I hated it. I dreaded it. But my mom would load me and my sister up and say, we're going to go see great-grandmother. And you walk in the door, and the first thing hits you is the smell. Because a lot of older people lose control over bowel and bladder. And so there's always some kind of bowel, bladder issues in a nursing home. And so there's, there's a smell. And then you hear the shrieks. Because, because people, are, some of them are losing their minds. And so they don't know how to behave appropriately, and they're yelping out and shrieking. And, 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 but worse than, than that is the, the, the loneliness. Many of them have very few visitors. And so they see some little kids walking in, and they're, they're like, want to talk to you and want to pat you. And I'm like, ah, you know. But I'm glad I, I had those experiences. I, I, I think it was actually pretty helpful to see those realities. Because when, when you see those realities and then you work back, as you reflect on those things, 
you can then begin to, to understand how you should steward your life now based on those realities. So don't look away. Don't look away. Allow this reflection to, to teach you those lessons that death and dying is inevitable, that death and dying is judgment for sin, that, that, that it's not something to reflect on to such a point that you're debilitated, right? But that it should, it should move you into wise living. And, and, and the ultimate of wise living or the, or the, the beginning of wise living is, is a relationship with the sovereign good God. I mean, all wisdom literature tells you the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And this is what Ecclesiastes is trying to get you to do, move you towards a relationship with the sovereign good God. And I think you're tempted to say, well, I'm not so sure I can trust the sovereign good God. If this kind of thing is happening to human beings, every human being is dying and experiencing this hor horrible death. Perhaps I can't trust him. And I, I think that's a, that's a valid statement, valid question. Um, Ecclesiastes doesn't really know that much about what God's going to do about the problem of death and dying. He, he just knows that God, the sovereign good God, is our only hope. Because he's the creator over everything. So he's like, I, I don't know what happens in, in the afterlife, but I do know that the sovereign good God is the one I'm going to entrust myself to. Now we know what the sovereign good God did to deal with dying and death. And what he did was die. What he did was die. Think about what we're celebrating here or observing for Advent. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for Christ to come at Christmas, for God the Son to take on human flesh. Well, why is he doing that? Is it just some neat trick? No. Is it just so he can identify with us? I mean, it is that, but, but it's way more than that. He, he's becoming a human being so he can die. So he can experience the day of darkness. The one through whom all things were created, right? The one who brought creation into being is being decreated in death. And why is he doing that? So that we can be given eternal life. This is the hope of the gospel. That the decreation that we we that, that, that we we are um, under this judgment of this decreation, and so we don't have to experience that because He has experienced it for us, and we, by the grace of the gospel, can can be recreated. And so we hear this. In the second part of Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you receive that by believing. Believing in what Christ has done for you at the cross. You could find many, many, many passages that say that, but here's one straight from Jesus. John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word believes him who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. See how Jesus is coupling that idea of judgment and death and the salvation from judgment and the gift of life. 
The sovereign good God has become one who sovereignly saves sinners like us who are under judgment. And so if there's any lesson here for those who are not Christians, it is run to Jesus this morning. He's the only one who has power over death, over the effects of sin. And so run to him and put faith in him and what he's done for you at the cross. And it is through that that you will be given life, eternal life, not just uh, a short-term life, but an, a life in eternal, uh, eternity. But for those of us we have trusted in Christ, what, what does this passage have for us? And, and one thing it is not supposed to do is it's not supposed to make you fearful. That's not what the passage is supposed to do. Not to make you depressed or obsessed with your future death. <laughs> but instead to sober you. A lot of Ecclesiastes is, is just to sober us up and to get us to realize that, that this life is short and it's been entrusted to us by God and we want to be stewarding it in a way that is glorifying to Him and good for us and good for others. So don't waste your life. That's, that's really the point for those that you've already trusted in Christ. It's like, don't, don't waste your life. Steward the life that you've been given, whether you're in your 20s or you're in your 80s. Like, it, whatever youthfulness you have, whatever strength you have, whatever energy you have, rejoice in that. Offer that up in worship to God and in service to others. We're reminded of this death that was died in our place as we come to this table. Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, the night before his death, took bread and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and after he blessed it, he gave it to them saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He lets us know that he's headed to the cross to die, to experience that decreation. But the reason he's doing that is because he's forgiving sin. And, and wh while, while he does that, he's able to take our judgment upon him and to give us eternal life. So as we come to this table, we're, we're reminded of that. And I, I think as we come to this table, uh, it's an opportunity to be confessing to God, knowing that we've been saved by grace, we've, we can safely come to Him and, and we can confess. And so I think a couple of categories of confession that would be appropriate for this time of communion. One would be confessing our folly. That, that's a way that we don't steward our lives. Or we say, well, I'm young and I got plenty of time, so I know I should be doing X, Y, Z, but I'm not going to do it because I'm 20. Confess that. That's sin. And in light of the good grace of the gospel, that should fuel your repentance, fuel your, fuel your confession. But the, the other thing, the other category of confession is, is just paralysis because of the difficulty of this life, because of the hevel that we experience. And, and this may be more on the older end of the spectrum, I don't know. <laughs> Where you're like, you know what? I've tried hard and I'm tired and you know what? I quit. 
That's sin. That's sin. And by God's grace, you can be forgiven of that sin, transformed from those kind of attitudes, and get back out there to cast our bread on the waters and to give portions out to those that are in need and keep moving through the hevel because we know that this is a, a temporary time and God is giving us grace to move through that difficulty, that meaninglessness, and that we are headed toward not just dying and death, we're headed toward eternal life with God. Let's pray. God, this, uh, this passage is strong medicine. And we trust that, um, that we need it. Lord, we can so easily just be sucked into the trivialities of life, not making the most of what we've been entrusted and not making the most of the youthfulness or the, the strength that we have. And we confess that to you, God. And we also confess just want to give up. Just want to give up. Whether it's schoolwork or vocational work or marriage or parenting or church ministry or friendships or whatever the case may be. God, we confess to you that we've given in often to that temptation to just give up. So God, by your grace, forgive us. But not only that, transform us to, to keep moving ahead, to, to keep living wisely. Lord, we know we're, we're never going to get it perfect. And we also know there are going to be many setbacks. But we also know that your grace is sufficient. It is sufficient to overcome these difficulties, Lord. So help us as we dine with you, as we receive this free gift of grace and mercy and forgiveness and new life that it's going to affect us now but affect us forever. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.